hazard a guess that most of us, when we got saved, we heard the truth of the gospel, we believed, we repented, we trusted Christ, but we probably didn't step aside, get out our notebook, and begin to list all the things that we were willing to give up for Christ, or all the things that we thought we might have to give up for Christ. Most of us probably simply heard the good news, believed, and we followed Christ. The same goes for daily life today. I doubt most of us get up every day, roll out of bed or groan out of bed and stop for a moment and say, what will following Christ cost me today? But the reality is that following Christ actually will cost us a lot. In our text this morning in Luke chapter 9, in these verses, Jesus is teaching us that the call to follow him is actually one of great cost. The decision to follow Christ is not just to jump on the bandwagon of the latest and greatest spiritual teacher. It's not to join a self-help group that makes us feel good and costs us nothing. No, actually the decision to follow Christ is the decision to forsake everything in this world, everything that we love, everything that we hold dear for the sake of him, to forsake everything to serve him. And Jesus also will teach us in these verses That the call to follow him is not one to be rejected uh, or refused without cost. In fact, he warns against rejecting his message. To refuse Christ is not just to say, no thanks to this idea, I'll take this one over here like we're picking ice cream flavors. No, to refuse Christ is to refuse his offer of grace, his offer of forgiveness, and it is to remain under his divine condemnation. And that leads us to what I think for today hopefully will be our takeaway point, and it's this. Jesus teaches us that the decision to follow Christ in obedient service will cost us everything in this life, or it will cost us everything in the next life. That's what I want us to see in our text this morning. And so I would ask you, if you would, to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 9, I want to read the full text for us down through chapter 10, verse 16. I'll pray for us, and then we'll dig into the text. Beginning in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, 
peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears me and the one who... Uh, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we yield to your word. We ask that you would give us the ability to understand it. You would give us the humility to receive it and the ability to walk in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want us to see first this morning in our text the cost of following Jesus, the cost of following Jesus. Look with me again back at chapter 9, uh, verses 57 through 62. Jesus has turned his face to Jerusalem. He is walking to what we know is his death on the cross, and he begins to encounter people who are willing and ready to follow him, people that come to him and express a desire to follow him. But whereas we might expect Jesus to say something like, fantastic, we've got a spot right here for you. What we actually find is that Jesus responds to these eager individuals with words that would probably be a little off-putting. Um, it, not the words that they expected to hear, certainly. And words that may seem a little bit radical. What Jesus does is he warns them about the cost of following him. They say, look, Jesus, we're ready, let's do it. And he says, okay, hold on. Here's what it's going to cost you to follow me. We see in this first man that require, uh, following Jesus requires us to sacrifice comfort and security. The guy says, Jesus, I'll follow you anyway. We, we hear that sometimes. Uh, Jesus, no matter what you want, I'm on board. And Jesus says, okay, but just know this. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. One commentator described it as the, the creator of all the universe being homeless in his own creation. The idea is that even Jesus, the Son of Man, literally has no place to lay his head. Why? Because he's rejected. He comes in power. He comes as the Son of God, the Son of Man, does these miracles, and people say, no thanks. We saw that in the first verses. Samaritan villagers say, look, we're not interested. Keep moving. And so Jesus says, look, if you want to come follow me, that's great, but be ready to lose all your creature comforts. And that's hard. That's hard for me. I'm a creature comfort guy. I like comfort. And Jesus says, okay, that's fine. It's okay to be comfortable sometimes. But if you want to follow me, you have to be ready to lay those things aside. Jesus is teaching this would-be follower and even the current disciples that are following him that if you want to follow Jesus, you will be rejected and given no place to stay. We have to be prepared to give up our material goods, our comfort, 
and our security. It may mean living in a smaller house because God calls you to give more of your income to missions. It may mean losing your job because you take a stand for Christ. It may mean leaving behind friends and family to answer the call that God's put on your life. Whatever it is, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, be prepared to lay aside those things that we just we cling to. Many of them good things. Nothing wrong with a house. Nothing wrong with a job. Nothing wrong, of course, with family. But Jesus says, be ready to lay those aside if you want to come follow me. He encounters a second man, and we see that following Jesus will require us to sacrifice family responsibilities. Right? The second guy says, look, Jesus, I'm on board, but let me go home and bury my father. That seems reasonable. That seems considerate. And actually, in the Jewish culture of the day, that was one of your most important responsibilities. If you had to bury a family member, that took precedence over every other responsibility you had. So this man wasn't being um, sort of wish-washy. He wasn't sort of saying, well, I'm kind of on board, I'm kind of not. No, he said, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm ready to go, but let me take care of an important responsibility at home. Seems like a reasonable request, and yet Jesus' words to me seem radical. He tells him this, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Again, probably not what the man expected to hear. What Jesus is doing is he's teaching us that he demands an allegiance from us that transcends any other family responsibility. Any responsibility you have in life, in family, in Extended family, immediate family, what it is. You could even extend it to responsibilities at work, responsibilities, uh, your job, and whatever it is. Jesus demands an allegiance from us that transcends all of those things. Again, nothing wrong with those responsibilities. Uh, Jesus doesn't tell the man, don't worry about it, just leave him alone. No, he doesn't say that at all. But what he does is he demands that the man follow him. In other words, Jesus is not being flippant here. It may seem that way in the text, but Jesus is not just flippantly dismissing the importance of culture or family or anything like that. And there's a danger here that we would read this verse and go a little bit too far. Jesus is not telling us that when we get saved, we go home, we bust in and we say, family, good news and bad news. Good news, I'm following Jesus now. Bad news, you're on your own. That's not what he's saying. You don't go home and say, family, look. Hope you guys make it. Here, there's food in the freezer, whatever, but I'm, on, I'm after Jesus. That's not what he's doing. He's not telling us to forsake our responsibilities. In fact, Paul will later tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8 that if you don't provide for your family, you've actually denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. But Jesus is not coming along and saying, if you want to come follow me, you just leave everybody out to dry. It's not what he's saying. But what he is teaching is that if we choose to follow Christ, it will require supreme and unwavering allegiance. Nobody gets in the way. Nothing gets in their way. No responsibility in life, even our responsibility to family, should take precedence over allegiance to Christ. What does that look like? Sometimes some hard decisions. Very difficult, but Jesus requires it. And he finally comes to this third man that says, I'll follow you. And Jesus teaches us that if you want to follow him, it requires you to sacrifice even family relationships. So you saw family responsibilities. Now it's family relationships, right? The guy comes and says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me first say farewell to those at home. 
Again, that seems like a reasonable request. Jesus, I'm on board. Just let me go and leave a note for everybody. Tell them where I'm headed, and then we're on down the road. And yet look at what Jesus says to him, verse 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Boy, what a, what a downer to hear. Jesus, I'm on board, but let me go say goodbye. You're not fit for the kingdom. Strong words here. Again, it's this reasonable request and our, what seems to be a radical response. But Jesus, again, is teaching us true discipleship, true 100%, not 99.9, 100% discipleship and commitment to Christ means sacrificing our family relationships for the precedence of kingdom work. Jesus is teaching us about reorienting our priorities. So nowhere in here did he say that families are bad, that responsibilities are bad, that family doesn't count. No, what he's doing is he's helping us to see that if we want to follow Christ, it's about reorienting our priorities. Prior to Christ, I am about me, primarily, maybe others if it's helpful. But in Christ now, it's I'm about him. Everything else flows under that. We often use the language of make Christ the center of your life. I prefer him to make him the top of my life. Everything is under him. Not everything around him, but everything is under him. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, be prepared to leave what is left behind. And get this, don't look back at it. That's the idea here. It says, don't put your hand to the plow and then look back. I don't, I'm, probably none of us in here have ever tried to plow ground. Maybe you have. I'm not a farmer. Uh, I have tried to mow the yard, and it's very difficult to mow a straight line if you're looking that way. That's the idea here. Don't put your hand to the plow and then look back, because what happens to the work you're doing? It's all over the place. It's terrible. He says, if you're going to come follow me, you put your hands to the plow and you get to work, don't look behind you. Don't be thinking about what you left behind, thinking about all the things I gave up for Christ. He says, you just follow me. Don't let even something that's good, like loving your parents or burying the dead, take the place of the best thing. Don't let a good thing take the place of the best thing. Jesus is not looking for half-hearted followers who are constantly going back and forth from, okay, today, Jesus, I'm on board. Tomorrow, not as much, got a lot going on. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for people who put their hand to the plow and they say, for as long as you will have me serve, I am on board 100% of the time. He's calling people to forsake everything and everyone for him, which leads us to a question. If Jesus, if following Christ requires me to lose everything in life, here's the question. Is it worth it? It's a fair question. I think it's a good question. Is it worth it? If I have to give up everything, if I have to lose my job and my family, my culture, my comfort, even my very life to follow Christ, is it worth it? I think the answer is yes. In fact, Jesus later in Luke chapter 18, he's describing the cost of following him. And Peter, always good for a word, comes up and says, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. What will we have? Some people take that to mean him being like, well, Jesus, we left everything. Aren't we great? I don't see that. I think Jesus, I think Peter more had the attitude of, Jesus, we left everything. You, you called us. We dropped the nets. We came. What do we have now? And Jesus says this in Luke 18, verse 29. He says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house 
or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What I appreciate is that Jesus acknowledges the losing. He says there's not anybody who has given up these things or lost these things. And then he says, but you'll get more. Jesus acknowledges it. If you feel like you've given something up for Christ, Jesus knows. And he understands the hurt. He understands the loss. But what he says here is, if you give up something for Christ, no matter what it costs, you actually get something back. If you give up family for Christ, you gain a giant family in the church. If you give up all your possessions for Christ, the church will care for you. And as if that wasn't enough, he says, what do you have in the next life? Eternal life to come. So Jesus is not just sort of tossing aside the reality of hurt, but he's helping us to see it in perspective. Anything we might lose in this life, he'll provide for us. And anything we might lose in this life really pales in comparison to eternal life. So there's encouragement here for us when we think about, wow, Jesus, you're calling us to give up a lot. Is it really worth it? Yes, absolutely it's worth it. His riches and his rewards are mighty. But there's also a challenge, I think, in here for us. What if you're here this morning or you're watching on live stream and you're sitting there thinking, I don't really feel like following Jesus cost me anything. And I'm thinking about my life and I'm thinking about what I do and just I don't really feel like I'm giving up anything for Christ. What if that's you this morning? There's a danger for us to live a life of easy believism, easy faith, blend in and just sort of go along with the flow type of religion that costs us nothing. There's a danger here. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I really don't feel like I'm, I'm losing anything for Christ, I want to challenge you to think about what does that mean about your life? Wh- what does that say about the faith that you have? What does that say about your living a holy lifestyle? We don't live in a Christian society, so if the church is truly living as God would call us, there's got to be a rub somewhere. There has to be a cost somewhere. Examine your life and find whether or not Jesus is truly costing you something. Are you following him enough to cost you? Because Jesus calls us to follow him no matter the cost. Not just when we're comfortable, not just when it's easy, when it's convenient. No, we're supposed to follow Jesus no matter where he sends us and no matter what he calls us to do. Because he calls us to forsake everything and serve him and his kingdom. I want us to see secondly this morning there's the call to serve Jesus. So we had the, the cost of following him. Secondly, we have the call to serve him. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 9, the sending out of the 72. If we choose to follow Christ, we count the cost, we weigh the, the cost benefit there, and we determine that it's worth it. The question is, what are we signing up for? Like, I want to know, what am I getting into? What's the fine print here? We're not just agreeing to be on Jesus' mailing list or his daily devotional email list. We are not just agreeing to be part of a club, to donate monthly, to put our names on a church roll, to pick our cluster of chairs, or to serve in the nursery. If we are choosing to follow Christ, we are committing ourselves to him, first and foremost, to work in his kingdom, and to follow him in humble, obedient service. That's what we're getting on board with. The other gospel writers will include the narrative of the 12, but here Luke includes the narrative of the sending out of the 72. 
Why more? Why, Luke? Why would you include this story of the sending of the 72? This is great. I think what Luke is doing here is he's showing us that kingdom service, and that's a big blanket term, kingdom service for Christ is not limited to the 12 disciples. It goes beyond the 12 disciples. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, who were the 12? Those were the elite. Those were the inner circle. Those were Jesus' 12 disciples. What Luke is showing us here is that everyone who chooses to follow Christ commits himself to service. Service in the kingdom, ministry work. We talk about ministry as if only a few people do it, but ministry, serving Christ, is something that we all do. Serving in the kingdom is not limited to pastors or missionaries or teachers or professors or whoever. If you're in the kingdom, you have a job. If you want to follow Christ, bring your shovel because there's digging to do or whatever tool. If you want to follow Christ, roll up your sleeves and get ready because all followers of Jesus are to be about kingdom work. Now, we see in this narrative here the sending of the 72, and there's many weeds to get into, but I want to just pull a couple of big picture things here. What did that service look like? When Jesus sends them out, what's he sending them to do? A couple of things, and I think we'll see the connection to us as well. Jesus is teaching them to trust in his provision. Did you catch that? Jesus says here in um, verse 3, Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Jesus sends them out and says, look, don't take extra money. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take extra provisions. Don't bring anything else you need. Why? So you can go out and serve. You want to serve the Lord? Don't start packing. Go in faith. You want to serve the Lord? Go out in faith. Rely upon him to provide rather than relying on yourself to have enough supplies and be ready for every situation. Boy, that cuts deep on me. Go out in faith, not go out in preparedness. I'm not knocking preparedness. Don't hear that. But you get what I'm saying. Trust the Lord to provide. Eat and drink what was provided for you. Jesus says that. In a sense, he says, look, if you need something, I'll have somebody in your path. I'll have a person of peace. I'll have someone there to help you. Trust in the Lord's provision. Ministry for these 72 looks like proclaiming the kingdom of God. Verse 8. This is what they're supposed to do. Tell people the kingdom of God has come near to you. Right at the very foundation of the work we do for Christ is to tell people a glorious truth, to tell people about what has God has done in Christ. It was the same for these 72. He says, go out and tell people the kingdom of God has come near. What does that mean? God has finally provided. He's given us the Messiah that we've waited for. He's given us the deliverer that we need. What's that look like for us? Tell people about Jesus. You can do all the ministry in the world, but if you fail to tell people about Jesus, you've missed something along the way. We as a church must be about proclaiming the kingdom of God. And service for these 72 also looks like prioritizing the work. There's a phrase in here that always stood out to me. It just, it just sounds funny. Um, verse 4, right? He says, carry no money bag. Don't take a knapsack, sandals, the idea don't take all this extra stuff. And then there's this phrase, and greet no one on the road. Now, the road, this is, everybody takes the road, okay? And this is not like out in the country road where you don't see anybody. This is, this is the main thoroughfare. You would have seen people left and right. And so Jesus says, look, while you're going, don't greet anybody on the road. And it always just seems funny to me because it's, it's like, Jesus, are you saying that we just sort of put our head down and people say, hey, how's it going? Sorry, I can't talk Jesus right now. Like, what does that look like? I mean, is Jesus telling us to be jerks to people? Of course not. 
in this culture, greetings were much more than what we would do. Now, we do the sort of the obligatory, hey, how's it going? Automatic answer, great, how are you? Life is terrible, but my answer is always great. That's what we do. In this day, greetings were much more elaborate. They, could, they were lengthy. Oftentimes, there was an obligation, if you greeted someone, to actually go and stay with them. Long ordeal. And what Jesus is doing is saying, look, you don't have time for lengthy distractions. The, he says earlier in that passage there that the harvest is plentiful. He says, guys, there is work to be done. There is fruit to come out. You don't have time to get bogged down in these lengthy distractions. And my word, we could spend all day talking about how the church today is bogged down in lengthy distractions. Meanwhile, the mission is urgent. Kingdom service for these disciples, and I think for us as well, looks like this. You trust the Lord's provision, you proclaim the kingdom, and you prioritize the work. Be about the work of Christ. Luke includes this narrative of the 72. He expands it to show us that ministry isn't just about being um, serving for those who are specially called. I don't really feel called to serve. If you're in the kingdom, you're called to serve. Ministry is for all of us. We have to include ourselves here in the everyone. We are to be about, as the church, kingdom work. We are to be about making disciples. We are to be about telling people about Jesus. We are to be about missions and teaching and training and baptism and all of the things that go into proclaiming what God has done for his people. We are to be about that. We as churches can be about many things, many good things, but if we are not about proclaiming the finished work of Christ on the cross, we've gone wrong somewhere. We have to be about the kingdom. And so the question for you and the question for me this morning is, how am I serving Christ and his kingdom? Again, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I don't really feel like I'm plugged in. I don't really feel like I'm doing anything. If that's you, I would encourage you to talk to one of the pastors and say, look, I know God's called me. He's saved me. And therefore, I have a job to do. I just don't know what it is yet. That's a great place to start. Because there's always something to do. There's always a need. And what I appreciate, too, is that needs are tailored to our gifting. You know, God doesn't just call us to serve in a way that we're completely unqualified and completely uninterested, I don't think. I think God makes us uniquely with giftings and with talents and desires, and he puts us to work in, the, in a spot in the kingdom where we can flourish, where we can use those things that he's given us. One of the things that I, I think is great about being called to God is that he doesn't just call us to be saved and then assign us a pew and say, I'll see you in heaven in 70 years. No, he calls us and says, I've saved you, now get to work. So salvation in God comes with purpose and meaning. People my age today are desperately looking for meaning. They want to know that what they do actually matters. They want to make a difference in the world. Tell them the gospel. Hello, you can be a part of an eternal kingdom. You can be doing work that will last beyond your days and into eternity in the future. That's a, that ought to be a welcome message. You can do something that will literally impact the kingdom of God. You can do something. You can have a boss uh, who is the creator of all things. And you can do work that is meaningful. How are you serving Christ and his kingdom? We know that following Jesus may cost us everything, and so we count the cost. And if we choose to follow him, we determine that cost is worth it. 
But there's a question for us, and there's a challenge in this text. What about people who choose not to follow Christ? What about people who would hear the gospel, they would hear the truth, and they would say, no thanks? What warning is there for them? Is there a warning for them? Does it even matter? In addition to the cost of following Jesus and the call to serve him, we find in this verse the consequence of rejecting Jesus. Now, this is Luke chapter 9, this is 51 through 56, as well as chapter 10, verses 10 through 16. And I want to read for us 10 through 16 one more time. 1 through 9, he says, this, this is what you do. You go out, you tell them, and you do this work. We get to verse 10. It says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say this. Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done uh, in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Or you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who hears you or, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. A lot of details in this passage. But what we find, before we dig in a little bit, just broadly speaking, Jesus is essentially saying, look, not everybody's going to believe. We know that. Jesus said, narrow is the way and few that find it. As clear as the Bible is about how to know Christ, it is equally clear that not everyone will believe. And so Jesus says, look, I'm sending you out. You're going to go into villages. Some of them are going to say, great, come in and tell us. Some of them are going to say, no thanks. We don't want you. What do you do for those who say no thanks? This is in passing. I didn't intend to say this, but I'll say it anywhere. There's a good example here. He says, look, if, if they say no, wipe the dust off your feet, tell them the kingdom of God has come near, and move on. In other words, don't stop telling them, because you still tell them the kingdom is there, but don't get bogged down. Keep telling them, but also keep looking for new work. The wrong response is back at the beginning or the end, uh, back in Luke chapter 9, 51 through 56. Jesus, we went out doing ministry. There were a bunch of jerks and said, no, would you like me to call down fire from heaven and burn them? And, and I love, I'm so glad that Jesus' response is to rebuke them. I wish I could hear what he said or at least see his face. Did he roll his eyes? Um, did he shake his head? It, guys, not today. Maybe tomorrow, not today. That's the wrong response. And I think we've probably all had it. You, you're pouring your heart out for someone. You're telling them about Jesus, and they just throw it in your face. And there's a part of you that wants to be like, fine then. I don't want you to believe anyway. That's the wrong response. That's the fire from heaven response. That's not Christ's response. He says, keep telling them, but keep moving on. And there's a warning here in these verses. The warning is eternal judgment. This is real. The warning is eternal judgment. Jesus is talking about these cities around here, and his main point is, if I did the works I did in Jewish cities, if I did those same works in these other pagan Gentile cities, they would have believed long ago. If, if, if they saw what you guys have seen, they would have believed. And that's an indictment, because who should have believed? people of God, the people who knew the history, who were waiting on the Messiah. He says, you guys should have believed. 
I could have gone to those guys over there who you would say are well beyond grace and salvation. I could have done things for them, and they would have believed ages ago. Why won't you guys believe? And in fact, he tells them that it will actually be better for the people who lived in Sodom. They all knew about that, fire and brimstone and destroy the town. He says, for you guys, it's going to be worse for you than for Sodom. That would have been strong language to hear because everybody would have thought, well, that's like the worst town imaginable. And Jesus says, it's worse for you. He, in verse 15, he's speaking about Capernaum. That was one of the first places he did miracles, first places he did ministry. He says, Capernaum, do you think you're going to be raised up to heaven? No, in fact, you're going to be brought down to Hades. Do you think, but the idea is, do you think you can just say no thanks to what I'm doing and yet still somehow make it to heaven? I mean, that's the, the mantra of today. Pick whatever you want. Believe whatever you want, and it'll all be okay in the end. And Jesus says, Capernaum, do you think you can get away with it? Do you really think that you can see what I'm doing, hear the message I'm proclaiming, say, eh, I'll, I'll take something else, and you'll still make it to heaven somehow? No way. The warning is clear here. Refusal to follow Jesus will result in eternal condemnation. I mean, we don't talk about that much these days. Um, we, we tend to shy away from what's called fire and brimstone preaching. Some of y'all are old enough, I'm not saying how old, to remember fire and brimstone preaching. Um, I think there needs to be more of it. There needs to be more preaching that says this is the reality of if you don't know Christ, these are the consequences. And that's what Jesus is doing. He says, if you don't follow me, you face condemnation. Now, a quick note here. Jesus is not saying, you're okay the way you are, but if I tell you about me and you say no, now you're condemned. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 18, we learn that everybody is condemned already. Okay, there are some who would say, well, if they've not heard about Jesus, it's sort of a free pass. Well, by that logic, we should just pull all our missionaries home. Because as soon as you tell them about Jesus, now they're liable for what they know. Jesus is not saying that. They are already condemned. Jesus is not the reason for their condemnation. He is the hope of not being condemned. Jesus is not the reason they will be condemned. He is the solution to the problem. And I'm afraid that far too many people today have this mentality of, you know, I just lay out all my options for what I want to believe on the table, weigh them, mull them over, see what I like, and then whatever seems best and most palatable to me, I'll take that one get rid of all the rest, and there's no repercussions at all. I mean, that's our culture today. Easy believism, you take your thing, it's true for you, doesn't have to be true for me, and it's all okay. But that's not the case. Jesus is very clear in these verses. Eternal life is found in him and in him alone. Eternal life is found nowhere else but in Christ. And in, if you want to take your chances apart from him, you face only judgment and condemnation. Only judgment and condemnation. If that's the case, if lost people really do face judgment apart from knowing Christ, then that ought to be motivation for us to be committed to that path. That's why Jesus says you don't have time to get bogged down in lengthy distractions. He says we are dealing with heaven and hell. The task is urgent and the consequences are real. Eternity literally hangs in the balance. 
And that motivates us as the church to give ourselves to this task, to proclaiming the kingdom, looking for that fruit that's ready to be harvested, and trusting the Lord to provide it. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you're the exact sort of person I'm talking about that says, look, I've heard the stories, been in church, I'm here today because someone brought me whatever, but, I, you know, I just, Jesus is not really for me. Christianity, the church stuff, not really for me. I want to encourage you, if that's you today or you're watching on a live stream, maybe you're watching it years from now. If that's you, I want to encourage you and plead with you to reconsider. You may have heard a lot of things. You may have seen a lot of things that would sway you to disbelieve. But ultimately, you have to deal with Jesus. Ultimately, you have to deal with him and who he says he is. Pastor Nick taught us a few weeks ago the most important question. Who do you say that I am? It's not, what do you think of my followers? It's not, um, how easy is it to follow me? It's not, how much do you have to give up? It's, who do you say I am? And so if you are here this morning and you're thinking that you'll find your own way, what's that song? You can go your own way. You can, but it won't end well. Don't be like Capernaum and think, well, yeah, I don't need Jesus, but I'll still make it because I'm doing lots of really good things. No, I want to encourage you and plead with you and challenge you today to turn to Christ. Turn away from all the other options, which are all terrible, and turn to Christ. And do it today. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next week. Don't wait till you've sown your wild oats and now you're ready to calm down. No, you may not have tomorrow. You may not have next week. The call to follow Jesus is this call to experience the forgiveness of sins, communion with our Heavenly Father, and eternal life. It's the call to receive grace upon grace in exchange for sin upon sin. And yet the call to follow Jesus is not to be taken lightly, for it brings with it a great cost. Jesus calls us to forsake all earthly cares and serve him as our king, our supreme allegiance, our highest concern. That's the sort of message that needs to go out. I'm not saying to go out and make the message less pleasing. I'm saying be honest with what we tell people. You want to come follow Jesus? Amazing. That's great. But know what you're getting into, what, what you're getting into. Jesus says, leave everything behind. Be willing to lose it all and come serve me. If we hear the call of Christ and we join him, we will experience eternal life. But if we refuse that call, we will experience eternal judgment. That's why I started with this line. The decision to follow Christ will cost you everything in this life or it will cost you everything in the next life. The decision to follow Christ will cost you everything in this life or it will cost you everything in the next life question for you if you're here this morning and you're not a believer is, do you want to give up everything in this life or do you want to give up everything in the next life? Do you want to give up everything that seems really important right now and suffer eternal judgment for it? Or do you want to give up the things that won't even last now anyway and take hold of what will be yours forever? Are you willing to give up what seems so important right now, so necessary right now, that's the cost of losing the kingdom of Christ. It's the question you need to answer. And for those of us who are here this morning who already know Christ, I would just encourage us to remain committed to the task at hand. 
Jesus said the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. It hasn't changed. The harvest is still plentiful and the laborers are few. Be about the kingdom. Don't, don't get entangled in lengthy uh, distractions. Be about the kingdom. What a joy and what a responsibility it is to serve in his kingdom. The truth is it may cost us everything in this life, but praise God, life is not just about this life. Following Christ may cost you everything this side of the grave, but you gain everything on the other side. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the truth of Scripture. We're grateful for verses that just lift us up. We're grateful for verses that really really bring us low and challenge us. We want to follow you. We want to hear that call. The cost is great, but the rewards are greater. Doesn't mean that following you is easy. Doesn't mean that following you is without uh, difficulties. It just means that we consider it worth the cost. Because you are great, you are mighty. You are our creator, our redeemer, our savior, and our king. You are our helper and our friend. Does Jesus care when times are tough? Does Jesus care that we have given up so many things? Yes, he cares. I know he cares. Father, hear our hearts and our uh, intentions during this time of musical response. Maybe you're calling us to give up something and gain. Maybe you're calling us to turn over an area of life where we've, we've clung to it. Whatever it may be, Father, may your spirit continue to work in this time as we respond appropriately. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Justin, would you come?